You're listening to Alcoholics Alive, where recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous share their experience on how they live AA as a way of life. None of our participants get paid or speak for AA. Here are your hosts, Shank and Wayne. So, Shank, you know, we've been covering the promises, or the ninth step promises, I should say. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that the listeners know that there's promises throughout the book. How many? Not just, well, I know some people that could tell you the answer to that, but I'm not going to go there. Is it controversial? I, Is that I, why? I don't think it's controversial. I just, I mean, I don't know. Who actually sat down and went through the entire book and picked out all the promises? I'm surprised you haven't. Probably two of the Jeopardy players at Medoc. <laughs> oh, and I'm not even on and I already know yeah. who they are. Uh, look at the guests went in quick. <laughs> it could have been, sir. That's a good point. That's a good point. But <laughs> there are lots of promises in the book other than the ones that we are covering this season, just so you know. Probably one of the better promises is in the forward of the first edition where it says we've recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. That's a, that's a pretty big promise. Doesn't it promise we'll drink again too? Does it? <laughs> I don't I guess know. If you, I don't know if it does or not. I think maybe if you stop doing certain things, it may, it may imply that we'll have to, we'll have to get our researchers or maybe we can ask uh, the chat GPT chat bot. If they'll, <laughs> if they know, Oh my goodness. Anyway, uh, we've got a good guest with us. You've already heard her. She's already spoken up. Uh, Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. It's good to be here. Uh, My name's Sarah. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Sobriety date, December 24th, 1988. Uh, Come from Durham. And we um, got to AA very young. I was introduced to AA uh, by force in a uh, group home, an adolescent transitional living center, forced to go to AA meetings and got out of there and wasn't able to stay sober, made a little bit of a connection with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous outside, but I didn't make it last and uh, wasn't quite ready to go to any lengths and to connect, continue to drink for what I thought was going to be 10 more years because I was 18. I was going to come back into AA when I was 28 and uh, ended up being three months Wow. And uh, only made it that long, but uh, trying to drink with a, a belly food full, full of booze and a mind full of alcohol synonymous wasn't mixing. And I was trying to prove the literature wrong and you all wrong. And uh, the consequences of this time out um, was alarming to see how bad things got before I could come back to the program. And uh, a, a normal drinker would have, with those kind of consequences, would have come back. But they became consequences as serious as you know, legal consequences and health consequences that were never going to go away. And so I uh, made it to AA, um, crawling in uh, Christmas Eve of 98 and uh, just decided to to give it 100% because if it didn't work, nothing was. And so I've been able to stay here ever since and grow up in Alcoholics Noms and conform to 
these, these principles and practice these steps in my life and the one we're talking about today and have these promises come true and have a brand new life given me because of what I found here. So that's my introduction. So the goal was 10 years and you lasted three months. That's a, that's a quick crash and burn. <laughs> that's a quick turnaround there. <laughs> that's, quick. that's right. That's some serious drinking there. Didn't hang any longer. My goodness. Well, we're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Shank, what's the topic? Our topic today is fear of people. So if you're just tuning in, we are on episode 12 of this fourth season. We have gone through all of the previous promises in previous episodes, um, but we are now on the 10th promise, which is fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. This is a pretty bold claim, I think. Mm. It sure is. Sarah, you got any experience with that? Mm-hmm. I do have experience with that. Well, I think like I've always heard these promises come true after having worked the first, after me having worked the first you know, eight steps and get to the ninth step and have some changes occur, some looking inside occur, um, some admissions of defects, obviously preceded by all that surrender in the first three steps and first, second and third and turning my will and life over. And so a lot of changes happened before I got to this. And uh the fear of people and economic economic insecurity, um, the fear of people was most profound for me. Uh, I, uh, because of things that I had done in my life preceding alcoholism, alcoholism, and then even in my years of drinking, I was absolutely afraid to face the world, people from my past. I was the kind of person that wanted to cross the street. If I saw someone coming, I wanted to be on the other side of the street from anybody else that had had any interaction with me in the past. And so coming in and working these steps and making these amends, um, especially with my family, um, it allowed me to to be a part of them again, to go to reunions and not feel like I was on the outside, to, to actually go to them in amends and talk about the wrongs I had done and uh, let them know what I was trying to do with my life. And uh, ask them if there was anything that I could do to make my wrongs right to them. I remember the biggest profound fear of people had to do with that was one of the biggest changes, I think, was with my family and my ability to really fit in my family again um, and to belong and to participate. Um, Economic insecurity. um, I was all of 18. I had done my pride coming into alcohol Anonymous was that I was not a thief because I didn't steal, but I, I've learned now today that there's many, you know, versions of, of being a thief. And so I was, but I, I made some financial amends. I didn't have a lot of creditors coming in. Um, but, uh, because of the changes in the six and seven step, I began to live differently more responsibly and uh, and so the economic insecurity from living right at that point, cleaning up the past and getting current and living right for me, I didn't create new chaos and uh, and had just less the fear when I was not spending my money irresponsibly and uh, dishonestly. So um, absolutely have some experience with that. Well, the fear of people has plagued me for a long time. I, I, uh, 
I struggled with that, with that one for years sober. Yeah. It was just kind of, you know, come and go and, mm -hmm. um, fear of economic insecurity. I probably would have told you I didn't have it, but I stole money for, for several years sober. <laughs> and, uh, looking back on it, I, I, I stole money because I was afraid that I wasn't gonna, yeah, wasn't going to be able to make it or that I wasn't going to have enough or that I wasn't going to have mine. And when I got some specific experience with that being gone, when I actually got honest about stealing and actually went and made a direct amends to an employer and, uh, was willing to make that right. Not long after that, whatever that fear was, it, it went away. Um, and it's net, it's not come back fear of people. I mean, I, it's kind of, it kind of has come and gone for me. I, I struggled with that for years, but I'll tell you one experience I had, I, it just popped in my mind. I was sober 18 years and this guy that I look up to, he's, a, he's one of my heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous. We used, we used to carry this message into a, a prison together. And one week we, we show up there and he comes up to me. He says, I need to talk to you. He's been sober way longer than I have. He says, he says, I know. He says, I said some things to you last week and it looked like it shook you and, 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 and probably hurt you. And he says, I just you know want to tell you that I, I apologize for that. And I swear this is true. I had no clue what he was talking about. <laughs> and I, it like, it hit me that that fear of what people think and worried about what, you know, what I'm doing and who's watching it, it was gone because I, I swear I had no idea what he was talking about. So whatever he thinks he did the week before, it didn't have any impact on me. And I like, I finally realized that, man, I've kind of grown up in that area. Mm -hmm. So, but I couldn't tell you exactly something that I did to make that go away. It just, you know, slowly over time, it, it kind of, it kind of disappeared for me. So since both of you all have been sober for quite some time, uh, after this fear of people and of economic insecurity leaves you, will it return? I mean, I guess both of you all have kind of touched on that. Yes, it does. But uh, what does that look like? in your life, how were you able to clean it up from having done amends previously? Well, I, I know that off of one of um, the most recent inventories that I've done, that was the highest, the, the biggest walk away from it was fear of what other people thought of me or looking good in other people's eyes. That was the biggest walk away. I think I have from one um, of the most recent ones. And um, so it obviously has come back for me. Um, but it, I would, I was thinking about this, that the difference though has been is that it's not so much what I've done to them because I don't tend to create as much damage and as chaos as I used to, but, um, but it's more futuristic and the what ifs and the, and so that my fears have changed a lot. And so it's the navigation of those fears. I love the fear prayer, you know, God, please remove my fear and direct my attention. What you would have me be. What do I want to, how do I want to act? And and I practice acting that about how I should be as opposed to all my fears and the what ifs of what they're going to think of me and what I'm going to look like in their eyes. So I think a lot of sixth, seventh, sixth and seventh up work has been good for me practicing the opposite. 
practicing exactly what that fear prayer embodies about what would God have me be looking at those ideals that emerge after having a divorce step and uh, get to see, well, this is the ideal I'm practicing in the workplace and in the family and as a mother and as a, as a member of the program. And so try to practice a lot of those with the fear of people. Um, that's definitely one I've, I've dealt with a lot. And then I talk about the economic insecurity, like it's returned as well. Um, but it's all these great things that the program's put in my life now that I now have a lot more to lose than I ever had. I had nothing when I came into the program. So I have a lot more to lose. But again, it's it's about principles and using spiritual principles that guide my, my actions and my spending, not spending more than I make um, is a basic spiritual principle, um, investing wisely and things like that. So, yeah. 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 I think it's one of those things that, um, if I'm, if I'm doing a, uh, a regular, you know, I guess we would call it 10th and 11th step here on the podcast. If, if I'm staying current with people and, um, trying to help other people and staying uh, active in, in prayer, I think some of that stuff, it crops up, but it doesn't stay with me. So, I mean, I mean, I may go into a new experience and, and be afraid of, of somebody or afraid of what they're going to think of me. Um, but if I stay active in just simple actions of, of prayer and, you know, saying thy will be done, not mine and, and talking to people with experience, it, it just doesn't dominate me or paralyze me like it used to. Um, Shank, what, what, um, what does economic insecurity mean? I know we chatted a little bit about it before we recorded. Well, I've always, always just thought that it was talking about wealth or about money, about, you know, I mean, I grew up poor. So when I got sober, before I got sober too, I would always just try to pay for everything in cash, save up the money, whatever. Like I just, I was so afraid to be in debt and things like that, which is not necessarily the worst thing. But after I got sober, you know, I'm like, oh, fear of economic insecurity. Like, that's amazing. I just won't worry about it anymore. I won't worry about being rich or poor or any of that. And maybe that's true. Um, but as I was looking it up before we were recording, um, it can also mean of or relating to the practical necessities of life. So yeah. it's not just, um, you know, the fear of not having money. It's also yeah, the fear of just not having basic practical necessities, whatever I view that I need to get by, whether it's love, attention, food, water, place to live. Like it's not necessarily just I'm going to have piles of cash everywhere. Like I'm not going to be afraid that I'm not going to have that. <laughs> That's yeah. what I always thought. I think I think most people probably think about just money. When, when we talk about economic insecurity, I know I did for years. I just kind of associated with money and having enough money, but it's really fear of not having enough to survive and to get along. I think is if you really look at what the, the term economic means. Well, and prior and, to even looking that up, I would have told you that, yeah, economic insecurity, no problem for me. Although I recently got a new car and probably in the past, I don't know, six, seven weeks that I've had it. I'm like, 
I need to sell this. Like, this is ridiculous. I don't need this car. Like I'll sell it. I'll just like go buy something for two grand, you know, which it does touch on that. Just, am I going to be able to pay for these practical necessities of life because I have a nicer car now, you know, like that does go through my mind. So it's interesting that we're doing this today, giving kind of a new spin on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't think we deserve anything good. You deserve, you deserve the new car, Shank. Oh, thanks so much. Enjoy it. Well, and for me, the fear of people, like I'm just the queen of overcorrection. So after I got sober and I was able to make all these amends um, to people I committed crimes against, to my family, to um, anyone that I had really been around in my drinking, I mean, it was just like overcorrected. Then for the past probably, I don't know, five to seven years of my sobriety, I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. You know, like I had no fear whatsoever. Did just didn't care. Like I'm going to show up, do what I need to do. And that person doesn't like it. I don't care. I don't care what anyone thinks, which is also like not the right. attitude. Yeah. Right. Have. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's to the extreme, the wrong way. Yeah. I've overcorrected. There were for sure three to five years of my sobriety where everything was an overcorrection in the opposite direction of probably what it needed to be. So, yeah. Yep. I was going to say one more thing about that, that amplified interpretation of economic insecurity. Um, You know, I'm a mother now. I've got these two kids and I've navigated parenting and social circles around parenting. And one of the first things in this community where I live, when people introduce themselves is they present their profession, their profession as well. And so I think that that also, I've Mm. lost that fear of having to measure up to these other parents that at these play groups with our little toddler kids, you know, we have to do, we have to state what we do before we can get through the introductions. And, and so I, I don't have to be any more than I am. I'm okay as I am. So that's been a lot of the freedom that's come from working these steps is being okay, but just, what I've come to the table with today. Um, That was another thing when you talk about it, an amplified interpretation of that economic insecurity. Appreciate that. It's a lot of freedom in that. A lot of freedom in that. Yeah. Sarah, do you have a specific amends that helped you overcome fear or economic insecurity? Yeah, I I did have one. Um, I was still drinking. I was, um, I got a great opportunity to be an apprentice at an oral surgeon's office. And I was so public about the way that I drank in my small town that I'm from that I was seen in the wrong neighborhoods with the wrong people doing the, you know, all kinds of mischief and, and ornery alcoholic things. And, um, and my, this employer let me go um, because he told me I was an embarrassment to his practice. And I was outraged about it and um, it was just so resentful and uh, how I was so wronged by this. And um, and so I came into Alcoholics Anonymous years later and had to revisit that. And I owed him an amend um, for not being a stellar employee and for other things. And uh, and it was one of those that there's a lot of controversy sometimes in rooms about, can I go to a person that I'm still angry at? And our, our book tells us clearly we can, but but this was an example where I was still angry at this um, previous employer. And I went to him and um, made my amends like I was guided in the book. And then as a result of having made the amends, I received the gift of forgiveness towards that person. And um, and so that's one particular amend that, that stands out. I, 
I was able to enter back into the world without fear of having any interaction with him or people that knew me from that stage. It was another way of rejoining life um, that they talk about in those promises that that making that amend allowed me to rejoin and take my place and just nice. solidify that I was a different person. I was a different woman, not the same woman who came in these rooms. Yep. Very nice. Very nice. Shank, let's move on to battle of the books. All right. Our guest is very excited about Battle of the Books. We're going to see what comes of this. Okay. So we are in step 10, round 10. Battle of the Books. This is our segment where we put a reading of the step so this is step 10 from the big book versus the 12 by 12. And then we're going to vote. So the reading from the big book is from page 84. And it says, this thought brings us to step 10, which su- suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. Hmm. It's a pretty serious reading. Okay. and. The 12 by 12, this is from page 93. It says, whenever we fail any of these people, we can promptly admit it to ourselves always and to them also when the admission would be helpful. Courtesy, kindness, justice, and love are the keynotes by which we may come into harmony with practically anyone. When in doubt, we can always pause saying, not my will, but thine be done. And we can often ask ourselves, am I doing to others as I would have them do to me today? What do y'all think? <laughs> Sarah, you got to go. You got to go first. What you? <laughs> so I'm embarrassed to say that this is one of those readings that for the 12 and 12 reading that jumps out at me like someone's been in that book writing since I've read it again. It is a phenomenal reading <laughs> and I haven't read it in a long time. If uh, if ever before is what. What I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting the feeling. It's a great reading. I'm undecided. I've entered into this telling Wayne and Shane. Yeah. I'm undecided because they're both so good. Um, looking at that big book one, I, mean, I like. Whew, I like the references. You know how the big book uses references to time and when things have to be done. So they talk about like we we vigorously commence this way of living as we clean up the past. So it's something that I can go ahead and do as I'm cleaning up the past. I like those references to time. They say we discuss things with someone immediately. We make amends immediately and quickly if we've harmed anyone. So like a couple of references to time, how, how fast it has to be done. 
Uh, I love um, my guide. The, the guide that I've always used for a 10 step is look for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And they go and they repeat that like in the 11th step later, like they'll repeat the same four things in the 11th step later and just add a couple more questions to it. But it's always kind of been the base of what I go to out of the big book, those four things when I'm doing inventory, uh, daily inventory. Um, I'm a particular fan of we discuss them with someone immediately. The fifth step makes reference to a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. So like, then we compare it to like that 12 and 12 where, where they, they do say, you know, we admit it to, we promptly admit it to ourselves and then to them. And so I kind of like the 10th step out of the big book in this point where they, they say it has to be discussed with like a member of AA first prior to sometimes being discussed with the person. I like that suggestion of consult with another person beforehand. Um, and so um, we, uh, and then I always like, both of them tend to, tend to turn us to res resolutely look towards our thoughts, turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. Um, and I love, but I love the prayer that's put in at the end. Uh, one of the things that I try to, when we were talking about ideals earlier and what I'm trying to practice, like the fear prayer, what would God have me be? I, I love the courtesy, kindness, justice, and love being the keynotes of what can help me come into harmony. And I've heard some great um, talks before on like the eighth and the ninth step stuff. And and one of the, the biggest things about the eighth, eighth step and the ninth step is like I was a creator of confusion rather than harmony. And so what the eighth and ninth step I think is allowing me to do is to be more of a creator of harmony. And I love that reference there and um, the embodiment. Both of them kind of embody the, like the St. Francis of Assisi prayer, where we talk about the understanding of what others are doing. And then if I understand better their case, I'm less likely to, to anger, to react because I'm kind of understanding where they're coming from, why they might be acting that way. Um, and then the biggest tool that we, my sponsees and I have been really focusing on in the last like years has been the pause, the tool of the pause. I can always pause when agitated or doubtful. That this little 12 and 12 reading makes reference to the pause. I love the pause. So I'm, I don't know what to talk about. I mean, it's got to do something great sides. So I'm split. I need to hear what your, your comments are. Well. I just have a I, question. How do we determine when the admission would be helpful? Yeah, I was I was looking at that as well, Shank, on the twelve by twelve reading. Um, it's almost like it gives us an out. I to, should obviously be talking to someone else about this, right? So they're my sponsor, whomever is probably the one who would decide if the omission would be helpful. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I just think that's interesting. I feel like the big book doesn't make references like that that almost kind of give you a little bit of an out. Now, I'm sure somewhere in the big book there there are those things. But similar to what Sarah said, I really do like in the big book how it talks about time. And it tells us, like, when these crop up. It's not like, oh, you're a bad person and you haven't done your sobriety right if mm -hmm. any of these things are going on in your life. You know, I love that it says, hey, these are going to crop up. We ask God to remove them all these references um to time and that's a good way to put it like we have action items and we have like hey we go and do this so i really i really in like i really like that i i've never i've never heard um justice 
and love are the keynotes which a keynote is a theme i did look that up um and it tells me also again that we may come into harmony with practically anybody so not everybody but practically anybody <laughs> so if i'm not having those feelings towards someone this because it was practically anybody <laughs> and i still didn't do anything wrong yeah that's kind of another out like you're saying yeah like oh I'm, yeah. i don't have to make peace with that person yeah i will find the outs 100 mm-hmm. yeah. good point if we all got justice we'd probably be in a different place than we were right now but We'd be I'll on a different the, timeline. <laughs> yeah. I'll give the 12 by 12 credit for putting in here, not my will, but thine be done. I mean, that's mm-hmm. straight out of the 10th and the 11th step. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even the Paul's in the big book, that's in step 11, mostly, where it talks about palsy. Um, the 12 by 12 is missing the point about talking to somebody else. So that's that's probably where it probably doesn't quite measure up to the big book um i mean the big book reading gives very specific instructions on how to do a 10 step and they're very easy to follow and then it tells us what our code for life is mm-hmm. love and tolerance mm-hmm. so well and in the 12 by 12 also it says am i doing to others as i would have them do to me today like, I don't know. I feel like I can twist uh, that too. Like, I would have people treat me like really amazingly all the time. So, if I'm going to treat you that way, okay, then I would have you treat me that way it, today. Is that happening? And then it's like this expectation. Expectation. Yeah. You know, well, as long as I am loving, caring, tolerant, amazing, compliment someone's shoes and their outfit and their whatever, that I'm going to receive that. And when I don't, I'm going to be like, well, wait a minute. Am I not doing sobriety right? Am I not doing AA correctly? Yeah, you get disappointed. Well. What do you think? I think I'm ready to decide. Which one are you going with, Sarah? I'm going to go with the big book. Based on good points you guys made today, <laughs> the outs, the, the kind of wiggle room, too much wiggle room in 12 and 12. Uh, I like that point made. So I'm going with the big book. Okay. Jay Wayne. Shank, I'm going with the big book all the way on this one. How about you? All right. That's a knockout for the big book. Big book wins Step round 10. 10. Round 10. The big book wins. Shank, did you decide which you picked? I picked the big book almost every time, which is why I get Jerry to vote first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm in for the big book. All right. I just assumed you were, but yeah, we probably should check. Good catch, Sarah. Yeah. So that's three, three for zero on the big book this time. It sure is. Step right. 10, straight out of the big book. Straight out of the book. Sarah, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your experience with us. Appreciate you having me. It was fun. Yep. Did a great job. Thanks for your uh, for your experience and insight on the ninth step. Mm-hmm. So remember, if you're out there listening, if you take those first nine steps, you can lose your fear of people and hopefully lose your fear of economic insecurity. 
and keep listening for more of Sarah's story. I'm a member of the Primary Purpose Group in Durham. We meet on Tuesdays and Friday nights at 7.30. We're still hybrid because we're, we're a family-friendly group. And so a lot of parents still need um, some of that uh, hybrid access. So um, help feel free to join in. We have our special fifth Friday. Um, our Fridays are our open meetings. And um, we have our fifth Friday event tomorrow that's going to be an AA Al-Anon speaker meeting because, again, we're trying to have – encompass that family aspect like conventions might um, do where they try to involve the spouses or the family members or the children or things like that. So we would love to have you. We have our event tomorrow night at 730. <clears throat> um, my sobriety date is December 24th, 1998. And um, just, an, you know, just a miracle that I'm standing before you today and that I have the life that I have today um, that it ties completely to the topic of spiritual awakening. Um, and spiritual experience because I, my first sponsor was real, she was real fond of saying that, you know, she's not, she's not the same woman that walked through these doors, you know, in 98. And I'm not that same woman that walked through these doors. And, and what happened was the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, manifesting through a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience has changed me into a completely different person. One of the ladies, I particularly love jails. Um, I've put my application in, by the way. So for Wake County, for daytime Wednesdays, I'm a mom. So I'm looking for like services that I can do during the day while the kids are in school. And, um, and so uh, I love jails. And one of the ladies that I went to the jail with um, back, you know, recently, um, she said, um, she said, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the opportunity to live two lives in one. And I can assure you that I live each life to the fullest, um, each extreme. And, um, and, and so, but that's what, having had a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience as a result of practicing, working these steps, living these steps, practicing these steps over and over, year after year, um, I'm able to live a life that I never imagined was possible for me. Um, and to kind of um, backtrack and tell you just a little bit about myself, um, I, um, I'm, from, I'm from Wilson, North Carolina. I'm from a great family. I didn't grow up seeing alcohol in my home. Um, I have it in my family. Examples of it exist, but um, I discovered alcohol when I was about 13 or 14 years old, and I immediately loved the effect produced by alcohol. Um, it did for me what I couldn't do for myself, and I pursued alcohol whenever, um, as much and as often as I could. From the very beginning, I don't understand anything about social drinking. Um, I wanted uh, oblivion. I wanted the ease and comfort that a drink gave me, um, and um, I was, by the time I was um, 16, I had already been institutionalized one time. Psych wards um, were the first interventions for me. Um, I, um, I had been introduced to, I, was, I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 16. Um, and then by the time um, I was 17, um, I was in a long-term adolescent transitional living center for al for substance abuse alcohol substance abuse and um was go part of um going to that program was having to go every day um uh to meetings of alcoholics anonymous and get a sponsor from the outside and work the steps and i lived at that facility a long time and then i eventually transitioned to the outside but um <clears throat> i didn't um 
I wasn't desperate and I wasn't at that, that, that jumping off point and I wasn't ready to adopt this program into my life yet. I did return to drinking. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I've been cheering for softball teams this week. If you see a car decorated, a van decorated out there, that's my daughter. They won district tournaments this week. So we're going on to state. So I think I've yelled a little bit. So my voice is failing me a little bit. I'm sorry. But, um, but by the time I was 17, I wasn't desperate, uh, I, and I returned to drinking. Um, actually, I had to stay in that facility till I was 18. That was kind of part of the deal is that I had to, my parents did a last effort to try to help me while they still had legal ability to help me. They had me institutionalized till I, 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 as long as they could keep me somewhere. So I finished high school in, um, in a long-term program. Uh, an alternative school, um, but the best thing that happened to me while I was there was that I was really, the seed of Alcoholics Anonymous was planted. So I did get out. I wasn't hopeless. I wasn't ready to, to um, adopt this program quite yet. I still wanted to have one foot in the old life and one foot in the new life, and so I rejoined my old acquaintances, but I had the attitude that I wasn't going to drink. I, I mean, it did make sense based on the evidence produced um, that I, I probably had a problem. I mean, I have been called an alcoholic as far back as I can remember. There was something very different from the way that I drank compared to the person beside me and um, it was just noticeably more extreme and um, and I'm a person that intuitively knew that if a drink would work just as well on you know if it would work on a Saturday night it would work just as well on a Wednesday night and it would work just as well on a Wednesday morning you know and so like I took that morning drink long before I needed that morning drink and a member of of a previous home group says if you take that morning drink before you need that morning drink it won't be long before you need that morning drink and so my drinking was um was extreme and it was round the clock. I didn't, I would just prefer not to be present. And so that's how I drank and, um, and I returned to drinking after that long-term um, program and um, after being effectively in, uh, introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous and I returned to drinking with a head full of Alcoholics Anonymous and a body, body full of booze and they were not mixing. And everything that they predicted would happen, you know, the jails, the institutions and, and then death, you know, wasn't happen fast enough. Jails happen. I've been to jail, you know, institutions. I told you I've already been to institutions and, and death, you know, it just wasn't happening fast enough. I'm the kind of person that was going to die from a, a long-term, you know, terminal illness, but like little by little over the years. And so, um, so anyway, I, um, ended up, um, the gift, you know, that was to grow that the, what was to grow into the, this time sober for me, um, happened around, um, it kind of started happening around Christmas of 98, um, my sobriety day, Christmas Eve. And it's just an amazing gift every year to celebrate that, to be mindful of that for my parents. Because um, I was, you know, so young getting sober. I was, I was 18 when I did end up coming in here and staying in here. And um, it, one of the things that um, Silkworth really honed in about, now I'm connecting it to the topic. Don't worry. I'm not going to tell my story. But, um, but. One of, Silk, one of the things Silkor talks about is the absolute necessity of the person coming in the program to have experienced hopelessness. He talks about that over and over and over again, that in order for a person to come in and adopt this way of life and to do the things that are not necessarily comfortable or you know, feel very good to do, that that person had to believe at some time that for them there was no hope. And I reached that point, and I've got chill bumps just telling you that. Like that I remember that to this day what it was like to be there. I was, I reached this point of hopelessness um, that I truly believed that for me there would, be ne- there would never be anything different for me, that this is the way that I was going to proceed for the rest of my life, and that I would never attain what I watched people attain, um, and do so naturally, and do so, so easily. I mean, one of the clearest moments for me, I was 
I was an outdoor survivor, you know, survivor. I, I, I grew up on farms. You know, I'm not afraid to be outdoor. I'm not afraid to sleep outdoors. I'm not afraid to walk the streets. I'm not afraid to sleep in my car if I'm lucky enough to have a car. Um, and I remember one of the moments that was just so clear to me illustrating this hopelessness was that I remember the sun coming up was not like some people who are sober and very, you know, God-centered, like what a beautiful moment and a beautiful experience. Like to me, it was so depressing to start another day. And I remember, if you guys know what I'm talking about, that the night is long, sometimes very cold, you know, um, but the night is long and then the world starts to wake up and people start moving and they start leaving their houses. And I remember that I would watch people leave their houses after I had been outdoors or up all night long, and I would watch people leave their houses. And I wondered how they did that. And I did not think I would ever be able to join that sector of the community. I watched them have families and have relationships and just doubted I would ever, ever be able to have something like that. How do they maintain those relationships and things like that? And so that's the hopelessness that, that I settled into and just kind of, drug bottom, you know, in 98, the fall of 98, and, and Christmas Eve's Eve was, was when it, it, magic happened for me, is that I, I, I reached a point where I was willing to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I had some bad circumstances going on in my life with health, with legal problems, but I just came in this time and I said that I'm going to give it 100%. I'm going to do everything they suggest, and if it doesn't work... I'm going to at least know that I tried. And there's no exact, I won't have any reason to say why it didn't work for me. And so that was the approach that I came in to Alcoholics Anonymous with this time. And, and I stand before you today, many years later, you know, the different, a different woman that I am, having a different life, very different. And I stand before you today having all those things that I used to watch people have and wonder how they had those. They got those things and maintained those things. And I have all those things today. And um, even so much that I almost, this is, this is not true. Like, if you get to know me, real, it's not real. But I almost look so good from the outside that it's even hard for people where I come, came from to even recognize that, that I ever lived a life like that. And, um, and, so, and that's one of the descriptions that the, the appendix gives for spiritual awakening, spiritual experience. So that, that appendix that I make reference to is in the very back of the book, if you don't know, many of you know. And it, it describes spiritual awakening and spiritual experience. It's a little, the, the original printing of the book gave the illusion that people had to have an, a sudden, spectacular upheaval, a spiritual experience. They tell us in that appendix that we can interchange spiritual awakening and spiritual experience. One other word that they use, Silkworth in particular used, he called it moral psychology. Like some deep and effective change happened. And Silkworth noticed that when he studied all these patients um, prior to AA existing, he noticed that every once in a while something big would happen and it would have the power to temporarily arrest a person's alcoholism. And I know I've had experiences like that in my story. You know, I was a student of myself. I was baffled. I was frustrated with myself. Why do I do this over and over? Why do I end up in the same position over and over and over again? Why do I not learn from my mistakes? Why, what's wrong with me? I, I was, I, I didn't even, I was frustrated with my own self. But, but Silkworth talked about that every once in a while in my own story, I do identify with this, something might happen big that would scare me, that would move me spiritually or move me on some plane, um, and it would temporarily um, halt 
or pause my drinking. And the problem was is that at that time, this was me prior to coming to AA, it didn't have lasting power. Just that one little experience was a nice little experience, but I wasn't at that time connected to any solution that would perpetuate, that would continue that, that spiritual experience that maybe was initiated by whatever big happened to me. And so the design of the 12 steps, as I've, I've been explained, um, or I've, I've been told, if we look at the wording, the wording of the 12 steps says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result, as the singular, like I'm a student of language, I speak another language. And so like um, having had, it's the result, uh, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, that's, so that if we look at the wording of that, um, that means that if I practice the first 11 steps, I'll, it'll create a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience enough to continue and perpetuate. I had something good that got me stopped. It could be a jail, you know, like a jail can stop me, you know, temporarily, but something like big and some kind of experience in my life can also, could also stop me. But the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I got stopped and the steps have been that thing that has changed me, that has created that ongoing educational variety that happens as uh, contrary to what the book may have presented in the beginning, that it had to be some spectacular upheaval or sudden experience as a spiritual awakening. Mine has been the educational variety that has happened over time. The change of working these steps. I've worked the steps many times. I work the steps. I live the steps in my life. I practice this stuff. Um, I love having sponsees because for me, that's one of the ways that this program continues itself is that I try to do the same things that I, I do with my sponsees. I try to live by example. I try not to tell them to do anything that I'm not doing. And so sponsorship has really been another thing that's been able to keep this spiritual awakening and spiritual experience happening in my life. And so um, my favorite thing, um, too, is the preface of the 12 and 12, and it talks about, you know, these steps are a set of principles, spiritual in nature. I don't, I don't quote things, by the way. I can't quote things word for word. I'm not going to do it perfectly, anything that I say tonight. But it's a set of principles, spiritual in nature, that if practice is a way of life, like that means that I put my trash can out. This is a, an example from today. The tra- our trash collectors want the trash can put out in a certain way. And I try to do that just to make their life easier because it's the right thing to do. And I'm doing something just to make something simple like that. You know, like I really try to be that good person as, as much and as often as I can. Um, I try to do the right thing when people aren't looking. Like I'm practicing these principles. Um, I practice spiritual principles. Like sometimes you'll hear in AA, like each step has a principle, you know. I don't really kind of agree with that. I think that was something that treatment centers like invented because it was like a nice exercise that you could, you know, like practice it. But but I think that there's so many principles, spiritual principles involved in every step and, and that they overlap and that they repeat. And they um, and so that's what I really try to do is I've tried to incorporate these principles into the way that I live, into the, the actions that I take, into my interactions with my family and with my, my children, with my patients, with my members of Alcoholics Anonymous, with my neighbors, like everywhere I go, I really try to do that. And what, what stands behind me, I think powering me is, is just King alcohol. I don't want to return to the way that I was. And I get spiritually unhealthy when I'm not, um, when I'm not connected, when I'm not actively like perpetuating that spiritual awakening or spiritual experience. And so, um, I, um, um, Getting close to winding down, I'm just going to tell you a couple little stories. Um, 
one funny story was, you know, kind of to, to tell you, I was living in that group home when well, I was still a, a teenager, and um, I had been introduced to AA, and I remember one time, I thought I had to make myself have a spiritual experience, so I tried so hard, I tried so hard, and I just wanted to have, like, a white light experience or something. I mean, I've had blue light experiences, you know, but, <laughs> but like, I wanted to have, I just wanted to have that, and I, I you know... I never did have that. And so if you haven't ever had something like that, do not be discouraged. You know, like I've had many, many neat experiences. What, what a spiritual awakening has ultimately, you know, enabled me to, to do is to have a relationship. I've had a psychic change. I don't think the same way. It's changed the way that I think. It's changed the person that I am. It changes the way that I respond to situations that before I used to, you know, adversely respond to. I'm, I'm just a different person entirely. And, but what it's also done, having a spiritual awakening and a spiritual experience has slowed me down a lot. Um, many of you guys know me when I was young. Um, I'm no longer young. So, um, but, um, you know, like, I, it slowed me down. It's helped me be centered and present. When I'm slower and when I'm more present, I can hear the voice of God a lot of times. I don't hear a voice. I don't hear voices any longer. I have been in psych wards, by the way. So. But, um, but I, I can hear the message from my power greater than myself through the people around me. If I'm slow enough and centered enough, if I'm actively living those things, um, the, these principles and this way of life, I'm slow enough and I'm centered enough, I can hear the message that's sent to me. Like when we, when we, in the 11th step, when we ask for inspiration, we pause, you know, when uncertain. We ask for inspiration, intuitive thought or decision. Like that's, to me, the epitome of living in a spiritual awakening and God consciousness. And so I, um, I, I never did have one, but I had, I had an educational variety spiritual experience. And I've been able to stay sober, you know, all these years off of my educational variety. So if you've never had like a, a white light experience, there's hope for you yet. <laughs> and um, the other thing, too, that they say that a lot of times other people will notice the change um, much sooner than we will ourselves. So that it was, and I had that same experience when I got sober. I was, um, you know, by the time I was. 18 still, I was ready to sponsor. I was eligible based on the, the steps that I had worked to sponsor other ladies. And so huh, my first sponsor told me that I dressed like a hooch and that no one was going <laughs> to ask me to be their sponsor because, um, because of how I dressed and how I carried myself. And so none of the ladies that were coming into Alcoholics Anonymous were asking me to be their sponsor. So I had to go find women to be sponsees. And so prisons and jails have plenty of women that need sponsors and so they took me and um and so I got a lot of experience at young in sobriety I got a lot of experience going into prisons that was my thing I'm from Wilson North Carolina and there was a women's prison in these years in Tarboro North Carolina and I would go there and I would just basically spend time with ladies and you know like I was never afraid those were my people you know like that's where I that's the world I come from you know I don't I may look like this today but I'm not that person and um that you see in front of you like I I am more comfortable in a jail carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous than I am in a, like a dental continuing education, education course at UNC, you know, which is my <laughs> profession. Like I feel more at home and relaxed with those people there. And, um, but I remember that I was taking ladies out. I would even get to take ladies out on pass and take them to outside meetings. And, um, and I remember one day I had a lady out on pass and I was, um, I had to stop in a store in like an, a, a rough part of town for some reason, like a gas station. And someone hit behind the, it was one of the stores that I used to, when I ran the 
rougher neighborhoods. She, I, I think it was a sponsee that had gotten out of prison, and I was giving her rides after she had gotten out, and we stopped at this store for some reason. It was an old store that I used to buy from. And the guy behind the counter could not believe the person that I was. Like, I was unrecognizable. And that's what our literature says, is that to me, the person was unrecognizable. And that's how I was. A lady that I used to, my, my running buddy, I was... 18. She was 54. We drank the same. And, um, and her name was Duke Bug, and she was very good to me. She was like a little angel in disguise, even though she maybe was a bad influence in some ways. Like, she was totally... Those of you who have run the streets, you know that those people exist that, like, saved our butts. You know? And I, I don't know what I would have done without her. I mean, the, I would have had so many other things happen to me if it hadn't been for her. But... Um, I remember she would. She told me that too. She says, "I've never seen anyone change as fast as you change." And uh, and when I had come, you know, out of that lifestyle, I had gone back to the restaurant where we used to work for, and I saw her. Um, I we used to eat at that restaurant like you, like we ate out this tonight before the meeting. And she she told me that she says, "I've never seen anyone get out of that lifestyle and and change as fast." And it was the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has taken me out of. Uh, from the Roach Motels of 301 in Wilson, North Carolina, to, you know, I've been able to go to college. I've been able to learn another language. I've been able to travel the world. I've been able to have a family. I have a marriage today, and I'm faithful to one person, you know. <coughs> to me, that is a spiritual way. Like, that is evidence of... <laughs> I knew, you know, that was a tool I had. I could work those men. And, um, and so, but, like, to power that down and to... It was just, um, oh my gosh, it was just, just to be the person that I am today and to not damage my children, to, have, to, to, to be able to not continue this, this unfortunate chain of alcoholism, you know, in my family for today. Who knows what they'll turn out to be like. But, um, but just to not be a part of that um, vicious cycle any longer. So that's all I've got. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment, suggestion, or just need help, you can email Shank and Wayne at freedom at alcoholicsalive.com. Remember, we're recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we do not speak for Alcoholics Anonymous, nor do we get paid. Join us next week for another great episode.